Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. MLBC is led by Pastor Dennis Fountain and exists to help real people going through real life experience real change through our incredible God. We hope this message will be an encouragement to you, and we'd love to hear how God used it in your life. So open your Bible to John chapter 6, and I want to ask you a question. Has Jesus ever led you into an impossible predicament? Have you ever had an impossible problem? Second question, has he ever led you into a storm? Have you ever come into a dark time in your life where you were completely disoriented, completely lost, you felt like you were floating in nothingness and you didn't know which direction to go uh, or what decision to make? Impossible situations and dark, stormy seasons leave us feeling lost, leave us questioning God, wondering where'd he go, what's happening, leave us doubting him. We're in good company because pretty much every follower of God that ever really followed him experiences these things. We have a whole book of Psalms that are filled with doubts and raw human emotions that are written and expressed to God and that God so valued that raw human experience, he so was present with it that he inspired it and called it his word. It's pretty amazing. You can be really, really open and honest to God when you're going through difficult times. Impossible times, stormy times. How do we journey with Jesus through these things? And what is God doing when we don't know what he's doing? When we've lost a sense of him, when we've lost... the experience of him, okay? Is he still there? Are his promises failing? Has he forgotten us? Has he dropped us? Is our circumstances that are impossible or storms that are dark and seemingly life-threatening, do they surprise him? What's really going on? And John chapter six is gonna tell us a lot about this. So uh, are you there? You got it? Let's look at at this story and let's ask God to teach us and... um, and then we'll have some takeaways, and I want to share some personal thoughts about how God's used this passage in my life. So after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Galilee is essentially a large lake. You can see it's uh, three or four miles across. It's probably 10 miles north to south, give or take. Um, You can see, when you stand on the shoreline, you can pretty much see the whole thing. So it's really just... More or less a big lake. It's not like we think of when we think of sea. Jesus has gone, he has spent, I'll tell you, preceding verse one, not in John's narrative, but in the other gospel narratives, Jesus has just found out that John the Baptist, his cousin, and really his forerunner, his co-laborer, was beheaded. So Jesus has lost somebody. He's grieving. He, he experienced every human emotion. So when he found out John the Baptist was dead, Believe me, he felt what you feel when you lose someone that you love. And John would have been not only a cousin and a close friend, but really one of the first ones to believe that he was who he says he was, that he was Messiah, that he was the God-man. So Jesus is grieving. He's also spent an entire day and most of the night healing and blessing and serving people in Capernaum, which was a city on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And really, it was his hometown for his adult ministry. So he is sorrowful, he's depleted, and he wants to go away with his disciples up into the mountains. He wants to retreat. 
He wants to refresh and renew and restore, which is important for all of us, by the way. If Jesus needed to do it, we need to do it. You expand, you deplete, you cry, you tear, your tears, your exhaustion, your, and you need replenishment. And that's how the Christian life works. So Jesus is going away across the sea, but, now this is important, look at verse two. A great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. So Jesus has, you gotta remember this, when you're reading the, the gospels, you're reading single frame like snapshots pulled out of a much more exhaustive story. For three years, Isaiah said a great light would dawn on the people that walked in darkness in northern Galilee. This region was obscure, and a great light dawned. John says later in his gospel that all the books in the world could not contain the good things, the miracles, the supernatural things that Jesus did. So you need to understand this. Jesus was not just healing a few people here and there. He was healing everybody. He was doing not just dozens, not just hundreds. He was doing thousands, even tens of thousands of miracles. There was no holding back. I mean, everybody that came to him, he blessed them, he fed them, he cared for them, he provided for them, he healed them in supernatural, explosive ways. I mean, undeniable. When you think about it in those terms, number one, your jaw drops at the generosity of his love, the lavishness of his grace, that he just poured himself out with extravagant uh, generosity. It's also amazing that those people were so hard and refused to believe in him. So many of them refused to believe. Even ones that he healed refused to receive him as king. They didn't mind him being a magic trick, so a genie, someone that, that could heal him, you know, grow me a limb, heal me of my leprosy. They didn't want a, they didn't want a Lord. They didn't want a God to uh, direct their lives. So anyway, the multitudes, they want Jesus to do the miracles. So they're tracking the boat along the shoreline and they're, they're following. And as he gets out of the boat near Bethsaida, I'll explain where that is, there's this multitude of people that are following him. Look at verse uh, three. Jesus went up into a mountain. There he sat with his disciples. Verse four, the Passover, a feast of the Jews was nigh. Now here's what I want you to picture. Picture uh, a lake, this, you know, an oval-shaped lake. We're on the North Shore, which is the widest part of the lake. From Capernaum to where Jesus went, this sloped hillside, lush green hillside heading up into the mountains. It's not, a, it's not all the way across the lake. It's just across the top portion of the lake. Three miles. So they get in the boat, they go three miles from Capernaum. That's why the multitudes could follow easily. When they get out of the boat at Bethsaida across the, the, the lake from where they started, they're at the intersection of a major travel route, a major trade route, a major highway. All of the traffic from the north comes to this intersection. The Jewish traffic goes to the west. The Gentile traffic continues south around the lake. But at this day, at this season, it's Passover. So there are tens of thousands of people pilgrimaging, coming through this region, going to Jerusalem for Passover. And as they're coming through, this multitude is coming, and you can see these crowds mixing and mingling at this intersection, and people asking, what's going on? And you gotta think of it this way. Jesus has gone viral. He's trending on all the social media, Everybody's talking about him. Everybody wants a piece of him. 
and he just wants to be alone with his disciples. Well, the, the, the crowd, the multitudes that are coming through, the, 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 the hubbub is spreading, and the multitudes, thousands and thousands of people, follow him up this hillside. John doesn't include this in the narrative, but when you sit together the other accounts, you understand that Jesus spends the day teaching this group. In spite of his depletion, in spite of his grief and sorrow, he ministers out of his own depth of despair or sorrow or sadness. And so he spends the day healing and teaching, and the day wears on, and there's no food. You guys know the story. Let's pick it up in verse um, 5. You guys with me? Everybody okay? All right, look at verse 5. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes, uh, one of the gospels says he was moved with compassion, and he healed their sick. They were as sheep having no shepherd. So he lifted up his eyes, and he saw a great company come unto him, and says to Philip, Philip is one of the disciples, and he says to Philip, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, understand the context. Philip is from this area. He's from Bethsaida. They're, they've been teaching and, fee, and uh, healing people throughout the afternoon and early evening, and now it's, uh, the day is wearing on. These people have got to get home, but they're, they haven't been fed. They're hungry. So Jesus looks at Philip, who grew up in the area, and he essentially says, Philip, where's Costco? Where's Sam's Club? Where do we go to get bread to feed all these people? Now, understand this. Jesus is presenting Philip with an impossible problem. And it's really interesting to consider the next verse. Verse six, this is what John does throughout the gospel. John is painting a beautiful portrait of Jesus. The reason he wants to, you to understand this portrait and see this portrait is because knowing Jesus is not about a religion, it's about a relationship. John started his gospel saying, God, the Logos, became human. He came to the earth and we beheld his glory. When we could see God with our own eyes, he was glorious. He was someone to be celebrated. He was awesome and wonderful and beautiful and magnetic and attractive, and we couldn't get enough of him. We beheld his glory, and it was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So John says, I'm writing this book so that you'll believe, so that you'll know how much he loves you, and so that you'll come into that relationship of love. So every uh, every little vignette, every story is John filling in this beautiful portrait of who Jesus is so that we'll know we can run to him and we can trust him. Okay, so with that in mind, every now and then John is painting and we're there watching the portrait come together and every now and then he stops and kind of pokes his head out of the painting, looks at us, his readers, and tells us something that we need to know about the story. And that's what he does in verse six. So look at it with me. And this he said. So John, in retrospect, says, by the way, he said this to prove him, to prove Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. He never asks a question because he needs information. He all, all of his questions were to prod his followers to think deeply and to understand him more, to expose their own need to them. He's gentle like that. He's wonderful that way. So he says, here's what he does. Philip, we've got a problem. 
we've got all these thousands of people to feed. How are we going to feed them? But he asked this question. Number one, he already knows what he's going to do. I want you to think about that for a minute. Do you have a problem you can't solve? Do you have a problem that's been burdening you and a struggle to you that's been a source of sorrow or grief or distress or anxiety and you've just been carrying it? Jesus led his disciples into this moment where there is a problem and he brings it up and he says, what what are we gonna do? And it's a setup. And he does this to me and he does this to you. This is the way he still works. He leads us through life. He leads us into impossible situations, situations that should call us to cast ourselves in total dependence on him, but that's rarely what we do first. We worry, we calculate, we try to figure it out. He brings us to the problem, looks at us, smiles at us, winks at us and goes, what are we gonna do? Now, what Philip does is the exact wrong thing to do. And it's, I identify with him, I can't criticize him because it's what I do almost every single time. And then I end up like at some point going, when is this gonna get through my thick skull? Look at verse seven. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. Let me tell you what Philip does. Jesus says, Philip, we gotta feed all these people. How are we gonna feed them? Where's Costco? Uh, Philip goes, let me work on it. Big mistake. Philip actually takes the problem like it's his. He accepts it, pulls out his iPhone, opens his calculator and his spreadsheet app, and he starts to figure out how many people are there. And he's, you know, probably rough guesstimate. He's like, it looks like a lot of thousands of people here. So um, let me calculate this. How much bread would we need? How, how much? It, and he does the math and he spends a few minutes studying and figuring this out and he realizes how impossible this situation is. Finally, he puts his phone down. He looks at Jesus now in exasperation and he's kind of throwing up his hands like, who do you think I am? Have you, now be honest and don't point to the person next to you. How many of us have done that? Come on, God, what are you doing to me? Who do you think I am? I can't take this. I can't do this. What Philip says is, Jesus, I've done the math. This one is beyond all of us. We, I could work for 200 days. It's 200 days wages. I could work for 200 days, take all that money, go to Sam's Club, spend it all on bread, bring it back, and everybody in this crowd would only get one bite. So Jesus, this one, this one's the one that breaks you, Jesus. Like I know, now remember, Philip has watched Jesus turn water into wine. He's watched him heal people from a distance. He's watched him in Capernaum restore sight, heal lepers, Restore, restore health to everybody that was in town. There was one night in Capernaum, he, he healed all night long. He put the entire healthcare industry out of business. There wasn't one need for a doctor. Everybody was well. Amazing. 
And by my calculations, it was the night before this event that that happened. So now Philip has forgotten all that, like I always do. Am I talking to normal people here? I mean, isn't it crazy how God will resolve one set of problems, then you come into another and you're like, oh no! You, you forgot how many problems he solved for you throughout your life. And so you start to figure it out. This is what I do. I own the problem like it's mine. And then I start to try to figure it out and calculate it. And then I finally figure out it's impossible. It's humanly impossible. And then I finally get an attitude and kind of spit it back at God like, what are you thinking? This one is too hard for even you. The whole time, Jesus is not concerned. He's not worried. He's not surprised. He's not overwhelmed. Jesus knows what he's going to do. So let's keep reading. One of the disciples, verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, there's a lad, there's a little boy here with a lunchable. Five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? That's not going to go very far. We got impossible potential solutions that don't work. And Jesus said, now look at verse 10. This is interesting to me. Jesus said, make the men sit down. I just want you to remember this simple directive. He didn't say, solve the problem, guys. He didn't say, figure it out. He said, make the men sit down. We're gonna come back to that thought. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Most estimates of this crowd when you add women and children would be 15 to 20,000. So that's the size, huge crowd of people. So they all sit down. Verse 11, Jesus, completely undisturbed, completely unanxious, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. So in verse 11, I don't know how this happened. I'd love to see the DVD or the video of it when we get to heaven. I hope there's a giant screen where we can watch all this stuff. You know, I don't, you know did they pray and then they open their eyes and boom, it's all there? Did he, did he just keep reaching into the basket? And I, I don't know how this happened, but he took those little loaves and fishes and fed close to 20,000 people, not just, not just one bite, they were full. It was an all-you-can-eat buffet. And when everything is said and done, there's a dozen baskets left. I've heard a lot of conjecture about why there were a dozen baskets left, but can I tell you why there were a dozen baskets left? Because Jesus is that generous. He's that lavish. He's that extravagant. He's not poor. He's not, he's not wringing his hands. How are we gonna build a church building in Moses Lake? Like, I don't know how much your building is gonna cost. We were over there looking at the land and the grassy area. It's a grassy hillside. Interesting. Just like this story, you know? Uh, but it's an impossible problem. I don't know how a church this size, a pastor this age, I don't know how I, in my church, would build a building that's gonna be 100 million, you said? <laughs> just kidding. I just gave everybody a heart attack. I don't know how. But do you, do you realize... When we look at a building, say, or a, a, a situation in your life that just seems absolutely impossible, God is providential in your impossible. He's way ahead of you. 
And he's not threatened by any of it. And frankly, he already knows what he's going to do. Would you just let that sink in for a minute and break through your doubts and realize God already knows how he's going to redeem your situation. God already knows that one day you're gonna be celebrating and jumping up and down for joy at what he did out of the problem, out of the sorrow, out of the pain. He already knows it. Oh, if I could just get my heart and mind on that channel when I'm dealing with my impossible problems and with my stormy, dark seasons of life. So Jesus solves the problem. He feeds everybody. I'm gonna quickly zoom ahead in the narrative. The people are so happy about what happened, they are gonna take him by force. It's an amazing moment. They're now gonna make him their new president. But not like we bow before you, you're God, you're Savior, you're Jesus, we love you. No, they're gonna force him. They're literally gonna bind him, take him captive, take him to Jerusalem and make him. Here it is. You can make free food, free energy, free gas, free healthcare, free mortgages. You can give us free stuff. We are making you serve us like a genie. We're, we're, forced, we're, we're bringing you into bondage to be our president. Jesus, knowing the people were gonna force him to be king, sends them away and he goes up into the mountain alone to spend time with God. Now he finally gets to spend time with his father, to renew, to pray, to grieve. He then tells the disciples to go get into the boat. Um, this is not in this narrative, but he tells them, he sends them, go get in the boat and go home. So we're gonna pick up the story at verse 16. You guys okay? All right, here we go. Look at verse 16. And when even was now come, his disciples went down under the sea. So the sun is set, it's dark. Remember, they've got three miles to get home. It's not very far. It was a short walk. It was even shorter by, by boat. Uh, this should take them probably 30 minutes, maybe, okay? When you put together all the gospel accounts and you stitch together the math and figure out the distances, here's what happens. They get into the boat, verse 17. They entered into the ship. They went over the sea towards Capernaum. Three miles, it's a straight line. And it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. The Sea of Galilee can, I've, I've been there when this happens. Uh, in fact, we do these boat rides, the tours, and sometimes the wind whips up and the tour companies say we can't do the boat ride today. And these are big boats that hold, you know, 100 people or more. Uh, this is a little fishing boat. They go out into the sea, the wind whips up, a storm comes, and now they're threatened. It's, they're in the dark. Remember, there's no lighthouse. There's no electricity. They just generally know the direction to go. But when the wind and the clouds come in, everything's obscured. So now, sometime around 8 p.m., they're out on this water. The wind whips up. They're scared for their lives. They're barely surviving. They're just trying to keep the boat afloat, and they're rowing hard. And I don't know if you've ever rowed a rowboat or a canoe or you've got a rower at home that you work out with. This is exhausting work. Add to that the, the waves and the storm. It's terrifying. It's exhausting. They're completely lost in utter darkness. They can't see the hand in front of their face. They don't know which way they're rowing. And here it is. When you do the math, they row at the shortest. They row eight hours. 
they cover about four miles. So home is only three miles away. They row somewhere between eight and 10 hours and they get nowhere. Do the math, 10 hours, four miles. They're going nowhere and they're exhausted going nowhere. And here's what I want you to remember. Who sent them, help me out here, who sent them into nowhere and who told them to go row that boat? So are they obeying or disobeying? They obeyed, now now put the math together here. They obeyed Jesus into the darkness. They obeyed him into the storm. They obeyed him into eight to 10 hours of rowing and exhaustion and disorientation and fear and confusion and chaos. Total displacement. Now, listen. We think following Jesus is gonna be to green hillsides with thousands of people and we're gonna watch Jesus uh, feed and heal and, and, and it's gonna be glorious. That's what we love about following Jesus. We love the miracles. We love the supernatural. We love the spectacular, the celebratory, the awesome. But can I tell you, following Jesus when he says, go get in the boat, when he says, row out into the dark, when he sends you into a storm, that is just as significant. That is just as much obedience as anything else is in following Jesus. So they get out into this sea. They're rowing for eight or 10 hours, totally exhausted, totally lost, completely terrified. And what happens? And I love this. Look at verse... Uh, 19. So when they had rowed about 5, 20, or 30 furlongs, so no more than four miles, they see Jesus walking on the sea, drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. One gospel writer says they thought he was a demon, a, a ghost. Like, if the storm doesn't kill us, now the devil's coming for us. You know, we're, we're gonna die in the storm, and now we're being haunted. But Jesus cries out, and and, in John's account, he says, it's me, don't be afraid, okay? It's I, be not afraid. I think it's Mark's account. Uh, He says, be of good cheer. Hey, be of good cheer. They're terrified, they're rowing in the dark. Jesus, be of good cheer, it's me. 12 years ago, Dana and I walked into a doctor's office, and we walked out, the doctor saying, you have cancer. I was 42. I was part of a large growing church, Southern California. Life was super busy, super exciting. It was wonderful. It was Robert's first year, second year of college, something like that. Walked out of that doctor's office, cancer. Everything came to a grinding halt. What kind of cancer? How advanced? What's gonna happen now? You can safely say, we, we were suddenly in a storm. Um, that storm for about six or eight weeks was like, am I living or dying? What kind of cancer is this? There was biopsies and tests and scans and all kinds of stuff. Six or eight weeks later, I found out it was a kind of cancer that could be treated. So chemotherapy, radiation. By the way, the end of the story is I lived. Okay, just make sure everybody knows. Um, this is a happy ending, at least for now. Um, but, but here's what happened for a year. 
Better part of a year, chemotherapy, radiation, bed. I did have hair before cancer. And, and now I just cut it short anyway because it's so much better not to have hair. It's way overrated. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I was gaining weight from steroids. I looked like Uncle Fester. Uh, suddenly I'm the cancer guy. Suddenly I couldn't be and do all the things I was used to doing. I'm in bed about half the time. Life became very dark very quickly. Life became very disoriented very quickly, very confused, frankly fearful. What's gonna happen? There's a lot about that story I don't have time to tell you. Um, Early on we decided we're gonna trust God. We're gonna trust Jesus in the storm like we trust him on the happy days. We're gonna trust him uh, in the darkness uh, like we trust him in the light. Um, he's going to be faithful. Um, but there was a moment in that when I came to this story and the words of Jesus, be of good cheer, just jumped off and grabbed me. And it was like, it was like the Lord himself said, Carrie, in your storm, it's me. Don't be afraid. This is me. There was a moment Early on in that diagnosis, I was up visiting my aunt and uncle, and uh, my, my daughter was with me. I was on a trip. We were in D.C., and um, my aunt was staying with them for a couple of days. I was preaching at a youth event, and she made a big breakfast. They knew we were in this dark, stormy place waiting on cancer biopsies to find out what kind of cancer I had. And at that moment, for all I knew, I'd be dead within a year. I had no clue. We were preparing for all that, and we joined hands at the breakfast table. My uncle, his name is Denny, He said, well, let's pray. And and he was all too aware of this little sixth grade daughter sitting there with her dad and all the questions that must have been swirling in our minds. And it was just this, this moment is just frozen in time, embedded in my memory. As my uncle began to pray, and he's holding my hand and he's holding little Haley's hand, and he said these words. He said, dear Jesus, thank you for the work that you are doing in Carrie's body. Now, up to that moment, I saw cancer as a mistake, a disruption. What happened to God? Like, did he drop the ball? But in that moment, Jesus said to my heart, this is me. I'm doing a work. And this story, the feeding of the 5,000, this said he to Philip, knowing what he would do, Jesus said to me, hey, Carrie, what are we gonna do? And my spirit was like, he already knows where this is going. I'm in his care. He's my provider, he's my shepherd, he's real, he's gonna walk with me through this. Whether it's heaven or a longer life on earth, this has a happy ending. This has an explosively happy ending. Little did I know. And and with 12 years now of of history to it, I can tell you this, and I, I, I say this, often. I have, if you said to me, what are the five biggest blessings of your life? Carrie, what are the five biggest blessings? Here's what I would say. Number one, that I know Jesus as my savior, that he's my friend, and he's not just a religious system. Number two, that I got to be Dana's husband for 34 years, and wherever that goes and however long it is, she's my best friend. I cannot get enough of her, and I'm so glad we didn't give up when we were younger and when it was harder, okay? I tell I tell wives all over the country, your husband can become a good husband. You just have to give him a few decades. So 
It's just a much longer growth curve than, we, than they realize, really, okay? So, so being Dana's husband, being my kids and grandkids, dad and papa, oh, my goodness, parenthood, biggest privilege. I, I thought that there could be no greater joy or privilege in life, and then grandkids came, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, it gets even better. And Don Sisk tells me, wait till you're a great-great-grandparent. I'm like, slow it down, Dr. Siska. I'll, I'll, I'll wait for that. So being a dad, Fourthly, being the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. For the last 11 years watching, it's a miracle story. And I'm, whole, I'm a weak pastor who went into a weak church and we were like, what do we do? And we had no clue. And we did something that I'm gonna teach you in a minute. We, we pushed the problem back into Jesus' hands and Jesus revived our church. And watching a church of 90 become a flourishing church in a place in the country where everybody told me it's not gonna happen. Nobody loves Jesus in New England. Nobody wants to get saved in New England. It's dark and hard there. Buckle up, it's gonna be miserable. I'm like, thanks for the encouragement. Like, everybody told me that. But I wouldn't even have that fourth blessing if it weren't for cancer. That grew out of cancer. But you know what my fifth biggest blessing is? Cancer. How can that be? Like, like, I don't want it back. Like, don't get it for Christmas for me or anything like that. I don't want it again. But if I have it again, I'm not afraid of it either. Because I found out that Jesus is bigger than cancer. Amen. Jesus is bigger than your impossible problem. Jesus is bigger than your storm. Jesus told me in my storm, be of good cheer, which is a choice, by the way. That, that little directive, be of good cheer, represents a choice that I had to make in my storm to choose joy, to choose happiness. I could keep you here for an hour telling you the funny stuff that happened to me during cancer and how we laughed our way. We cried our way sometimes, but we generally laughed a lot through that trial, through that ordeal that Lord really did give us joy. Well, I want you to see this, and I gotta wrap up with some applications um, so Jesus says, it's me, it's I, be not afraid. Look at verse 21. Then they willingly received him into the ship. John leaves out the part where Peter walked on the water, which is kind of funny because um, John and Peter were very competitive to each other. So John's like, leave out the part that Peter walked on the water. But when it comes to denying Jesus, he gave us that story in full. <laughs> and, he, and he makes sure we know that when they ran to the tomb, he beat, he beat Peter to the tomb. He tells us that like five times. And then at the very end, he tells us that Peter's love for Jesus was rather insufficient, but Jesus loved him anyway. So he's pretty hard on Peter all the way through the narrative, which is kind of funny. Uh, it's kind of like sibling rivalry. He leaves out the part of Peter walking on the water. If you remember that story, Peter says, if it's you, let me come out there. And Jesus said, come. And I'll come back to that thought as we close in a minute. But look at what happens. In verse 21 they received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Immediately. Ten hours of rowing into chaos, confusion, fear, not knowing what to do. Jesus, immediately, Capernaum. They're there. So here's the, here's the takeaways. Just a few things I want to encourage you with in response to this message, okay? Number one. Give Jesus his problems back. Don't be Philip. Don't take the problem 
in your own hands. When Jesus leads you into an impossible situation and kind of looks at you with that knowing smile and says, what are we gonna do? Don't get out your calculator and your spreadsheet and try to figure it out. Philip's right answer would have been, <laughs> don't ask me. I can't feed all these people. Jesus, this is your problem. These are your people. This is your hillside. You're the God man. This is your show. This is all you. You tell me what to do. Do you have an impossible problem? Do you, am I just, is it just me or do any of us have impossible problems? What does he say to do with them? Cast all your care upon him for he cares for you. A year ago, our, we have a school at our church and a year ago I got a phone call. Your school's on fire. Two weeks before we were supposed to start school. So this was like 10, nine months ago. Your school's on fire. I get in the car, I just got done exercising, so I'm just in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, and I go over to the school, and I get out. Every emergency vehicle in Newington is at our school. People up on the roof, firemen, the full gear, ambulances, all this stuff, nobody was in the building. We had a welder that was doing some work, he left the site, and he didn't check his weld, and he left it smoldering, and it caught the building on fire. Now, the fire was a relatively small event, but the smoke that filled the whole school over three or four hours was a huge event. Two weeks before we start school, they've got, they got hoses filling my school with water. I had just preached this passage the Sunday before. Lesson, don't preach the, these impossible stories, you know, because God's gonna put you to the test. Good night. I'm standing out there remembering this story and I looked up and I said, I'm looking forward to seeing what you've got in mind for your school, God. I said, these are your students. This is your school. This is your church. This is not mine. This is not my problem. So tell me what to do, but you gotta figure it out. You know what happened over the next, it, it was a miracle, over the next 25 days. We delayed school by, by a week. Over the next 25 days, contractors came from states all around Connecticut and God provided $1.6 million of work on our school in three weeks. And we're still haggling with the insurance on about $300,000 of it. I had prayed for 10 years, God help us renovate this ugly, broken down old elementary school building. It was built in like 1925, and it's hideous. Roofs leak, I mean, just all kinds. And I didn't have a dime. I mean, we put a little bit into it here and there, but in three weeks, God renovated that school in ways I couldn't only dream of for 10 years. Um, give God his problem back. Number two, ask him, what is your next simple directive? What's the next thing he wants you to do? The, the people at the wedding, he said, fill the water pots with wine. At Lazarus' tomb, he said, move the stone. In this situation, he said, make the men sit down, distribute the food, go back to the boat, row home, go home. What simple directive? And here's what you'll find out about Jesus. He's ahead of you in the problem. He's bigger than the problem. He already knows the solution to the problem. He's gonna solve it on his timing, but he's gonna have something for you to do. And it's gonna be simple, accessible, a simple step, and it's not even gonna make sense. Make the men sit down for what? 
Move the stone? Why? He's dead. Water in the pots? Why? We're out of wine. What's the point? He's gonna give you a simple directive to see. Do you trust him? Can you obey him? Number three, do exactly what Jesus tells you to do. Don't ask questions, just do it. Just do what he says. Number four, and this is probably the most important thing, and this moves into the next part of the story, keep rowing even in the dark. Keep rowing even in the dark. Let me just be very pointed. Sometimes the Lord sends us into dark, confusing times. He knows he's gonna get us home. But he says, just go row. And the question on my heart is, if, if Jesus said, go preach to that crowd on the hillside and a thousand people were gonna get saved, I'd be like, yes. But if Jesus said, go live in the dark for a year and row hard, I'm like, ugh. But can I tell you something? Rowing in the dark in this story is just as much a part of God's purpose and plan as any other part of the miracle. Just row in the dark. Just keep rowing, keep doing what he told you to do until he shows up. Because you can expect, expect Jesus to meet you in the middle of the storm and expect him to be in control of your storm. Listen, when it comes to your storm and my storm, this is what I learned about cancer. Jesus ordained my storm. He sent me into the storm. He has a purpose in my storm. He will meet me in that storm. He's in control. He's at the helm of the storm. He invites me into it with him. He's gonna resolve the storm in his time, and he is absolutely gonna bring me safely home. And he's gonna do the same thing for you. And I want you to think of one last thing. It says in verse 21, they willingly received him. Do you know the essence of this story is the ability of Jesus to save us when we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves. And that is the essence of the gospel. The gospel, and I may be talking to somebody here that you come from a system of religion that taught you you have to be good enough to be saved. You have to work hard enough for God to love you. You have to earn his favor. But if God's word teaches us anything, this is what it teaches us over and over and over again. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nobody can save themselves. Nobody can get to heaven. Nobody can earn God's favor. And if they could, what a cheap love that would be. If God was the kind of God that only loved you when you're good, that's cheap love. Because true love loves you unconditionally. I love you at your best and I love you at your worst. That's how a parent loves a child. That's how a spouse loves a spouse. But all of that points to how Jesus loves you. And the gospel is, Jesus does all the work to save you. You simply receive the work by faith. Jesus multiplied the food, the people received it. Jesus walked on the water, the disciples received him. So let me ask you a question. Maybe this whole concept is new to you. Has there ever been a time that you received Jesus not as a genie, not as a magician to get you out of trouble, but as the Savior who died for your sins, the Savior who purchased your redemption, when you could not save yourself, have you ever said, Jesus, I know I'm sinful, I know I need a savior, and I believe you're the only hope for my soul. So by faith, I'm trusting you 
and I'm receiving your salvation. That's why God calls this a gift. You can't earn it, but you can receive it. You can receive it or reject it. And once you've received it, you're born, you're adopted, you're saved, you're forgiven, you become his. And for the rest of your life, the journey goes the same way. He leads you forward into impossible things. He leads you through dark storms. But the whole time, he already knows what he's gonna do. And he's waiting for you to say, I trust you. I trust you. I'm gonna obey you. Direct me, I'll follow. Lord, I'll keep trusting you.